Welcome to today's episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thank you so much for being part of the show where I, your rabbi, remind you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. And here is something that never changes. It is that uh, we human beings are constantly in a struggle between our two selves, our better angels and the satanic forces that threaten to pull us down. And and this is in every way. I mean, it doesn't have to be quite as, dra- as dramatic as that. But, um, you know, whether it's in terms of anything good, anything that improves your life, anything that builds you upwards, uh, whether, you know, it can be anything, trying to learn a new language or trying to lose weight or trying to um, improve your financial condition, getting rid of debt, building up revenue, whatever it is. Uh, it can even be overcoming or trying to overcome uh, some form of addiction, either serious or even mild. But there really isn't a single one of us that doesn't know what I'm talking about, that there is a struggle between the part of us that says, this is my head speaking, and it's I know what I should be doing, and then another part of us that is saying, yeah, but this is what I really want to be doing. Look, we all know that. If it, Even if it's nothing more than, let's say, uh, a resolution uh, to get up a half an hour earlier every day to get more done during your day, right? It's, it's just a fight. It's just hard. Everybody understands it. Everybody knows it. And I wanted to talk about it just a little bit because, obviously, I um, am recording this show as we're coming up towards the end of the year. And the end of the year is when, typically, people tend to sort of think seriously about what what they've accomplished since last Christmas, New Year, Hanukkah season, and what are they planning for this year. And that's why it's very much a time when people make resolutions, and there are a lot of jokes about how long people keep those resolutions. But I really want to treat it just uh, a little more seriously than that, if I may. And so uh, the thing that um, th- that is so very difficult is making sure that the head masters the body, as it were, that what you intellectually know you ought to do when you or, and when you ought to do it uh, tends to be blocked out by a compelling call that says, but this is what I feel like doing. And, and in that little struggle really lies the, uh, the heart of the tension that almost all of us tend to feel. I wanted to give you a very useful practical tip from ancient Jewish wisdom on how to deal with it. Now, as with many tips, my experience is that only a small proportion of the people listening to me actually try it. And of those who try it, a still smaller proportion actually keep it up for long enough to feel the difference. But the nice thing about this particular tip 
And as you know, uh, the the entire body of my work, the books, the audio CDs, the video material you will find on the store, in the store, uh, at our website at rabbidaniellappin.com, all of that is essentially the collecting together the huge number of tips tools and techniques in ancient Jewish wisdom that can enhance the quality of your lives. And so here is one which is is really very useful because there isn't anybody who is not going through in his or her own way that deep existential struggle I started off the show today by describing that struggle between what you want to do and deeply desire to do in terms of improving your life and the incredible resistance you feel holding you back to old patterns. And here is a wonderful tip, tool, a technique. What's wonderful about it is that you don't have to do it for six months. I'm sure uh, many of you have attended my uh, speeches, many of you have attended uh, programs, many of you have been on uh, webinars with me, many of you have read uh, the uh, books in my uh, financial uh, series, uh, and many of the things that I teach there, I say to you, can I? I say, look, you are going to have to keep this one up for two and a half months before you feel the difference. This one you're going to have to do for at least um, 10 weeks before you actually begin to feel it working and bringing you benefits. But the great thing about what I want to impart to you today is that you can actually find the benefits right away. That having been said, I absolutely concede that it is a challenge. It is. Um, it is. It is. It is very difficult. Uh, it's simple to. And it's simple to hear when I describe it to you. You're not going to have any trouble um, grasping what I'm saying. To actually bring yourself to do it is really, really hard. What am I talking about? Well, I think the best way for me to describe it. Um, is to read you a passage. And uh, while I'm reading this passage, it's from uh, a, a person's autobiography. And since he's got a published autobiography, there's a fair chance you've heard of him. You know, it's not an internationally known statesman or a famous politician or a uh, or, um, you know, somebody whose name is in the news every day of the week. No, nothing like that. But there's a pretty good chance that I'd say uh, the majority of you, not all, but majority of you will probably have heard of this individual. But I'm not asking you to guess who it is. That's a waste of time because I'm going to tell you who it is. But what I do think would be an interesting exercise is while I'm reading you this, I want you to try and guess whether the person writing it is a theologian, is he a, a religious, the, you know, a theologian, or is he a politician, um, or is he an entertainment personality, or is he a psychiatrist? Okay, those are the four choices. Is he a theologian, 
a politician, a show business personality, or a psychiatrist. Those are the four. Got it? I want you to listen and I want you to guess what this person's occupation is. Okay, here we go. I'm, I'm just selecting. A, a, I could have started a paragraph before. I could end a paragraph afterwards. But uh, I know that when I read things, it's not as interesting. So I'm going to make it as quickly as quick as I possibly can. But it's three paragraphs. Here we go. Quote. Then one day, as my visit was drawing to an end, a panic hit me, and I realized that in fact nothing had changed in me, and that I was going back out into the world again, completely unprotected. The noise in my head was deafening, and drinking was in my thoughts all the time. It shocked me to realize that here I was, in a treatment center, a supposedly safe environment, and I was in serious danger. I was absolutely terrified, in complete despair. At that moment, almost of their own accord, my legs gave way and I fell to my knees. In the privacy of my room, I begged for help. I had no notion who I thought I was talking to. I just knew that I'd come to the end of my tether. I had nothing left to fight with. Then I remembered what I had heard about surrender, something I thought I could never do. My pride wouldn't allow it. But I also knew that on my own, I was not going to make it. So I asked for help. And getting down on my knees, I surrendered. Within a few days, I realized that something had happened to me. An atheist would probably say it was just a change of attitude. And to a certain extent, that's true. But there was much more to it than that. I had found a place to turn to, a place I'd always known was there, but never really wanted or needed to believe in. From that day until today, I have never failed to pray in the morning on my knees asking for help and at night to express gratitude for my life and most of all for my sobriety. I choose to kneel because I feel I need to humble myself when I pray. And with my ego, this is the most I can do. If you are asking why I do all this, I will tell you. Because it works. As simple as that. In all this time that I've been sober, I have never once seriously thought of taking a drink or a drug. That's the end of the quote. So, who was that? What do you think? A theologian? A politician? A show business personality? Or a psychiatrist? It was obviously somebody who was in a treatment center for alcoholism and uh, who was cured, but not by the treatment center, but by prayer of a certain kind. I think the next thing is uh, for me to tell you who it is. And I will do that in the next segment, just as soon as we come back. But first of all, let me uh, remind you of our website one more time. It's rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, the book that we are recommending for your attention this week is called Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language. And what it contains is, uh, is uh, about 30 uh, principles, 30 timeless truths, 
30 tips, tools, and techniques for changing your life along with the source of those in ancient Jewish wisdom, particularly in the language itself. Uh, the book has a, um, uh, a recommendation by um, Pastor John Hagee and also a forward, a beautiful forward, by my very longtime friend, uh, radio host Michael Medved. The book's called Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language, and please read about it at rabbidaniellappin.com. You go to the store. It is on a special price uh, for listeners of the show at the moment and makes a, a, a wonderful gift. Now, will you get it by Christmas? I'm not sure, but it might be more important that you get it by New Year, particularly if you're thinking of making any major changes in your life during this coming year, 2018. Okay, quick break. Your rabbi, back with you. Welcome back, everybody. And uh, we continue onwards with the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thanks for being part of the show. And again, I, I cannot help myself from expressing my gratitude to those of you um, who have expanded the reach of the show by encouraging other people, by sending a, a URL link to somebody else. Um, you're, you're, you're definitely doing something. I don't know exactly which of you are doing it, obviously, but uh, obviously it is getting out. And uh, I've received over the last two months, probably, I'm going to say at least 100 emails from people who... Uh, who said I just got introduced to your podcast by a friend, and you know, and then continuing to say something, but um, those emails uh, are the ones that tell me that you're doing this. And I really, really do appreciate it. Okay, not to waste too much time on that. Not that an, an expression of gratitude is ever a waste of time, but moving on because I said I would tell you not only whether the author of that piece, the person who wrote in his autobiography how he had battled uh, alcoholism for years and uh, he was about to be released or leave his his last training session, his last uh, rehab session when he realized absolutely nothing had changed and that he was going back into the world and he was going to head back exactly where he'd been and that was the point where he said his knees just collapsed and he found himself kneeling and he started praying. And... Um, he has never stopped since then praying morning and night, and he's never had a relapse. I'm not only going to tell you whether he was a uh, theologian or a politician or an entertainment personality, psychiatrist, uh, but I'm actually going to tell you who it is. And uh, I'm thinking the best way for me to do that is to expose you to some of his work. Okay, and uh, I, I know it is considered, uh, generally speaking, it's considered bad policy in terms of a podcast or a radio show to play any long passages of music. But uh, I have done it before, a few months back on the show, uh, when I was speaking about the music of uh, Richard Wagner and uh, its relationship to... Uh, Nazi Germany, and I, I played you some pieces there because I thought and hoped it would be worthwhile. Your response was positive to that, so I'm going to do it again. This is not Richard Wagner. This is a piece of music 
created, played, created and played by the person who wrote that piece. I think you're going to be surprised. I'm, I'm actually going to let it play uh, for uh, about a minute or so, just because um, it is pretty remarkable. It really is. Now, you know, even if you're not into this kind of music, uh, it doesn't matter. I think you can still listen from the point of view of the virtuosity. You know, you say to yourself, if I spend six months or a year or five years learning to play the guitar, would I ever play it anything like this? And I think you'd have to come to the conclusion that you would not. Uh, there really is such a thing as uh, a human being being granted talent, which he then develops. And so um, here is the, uh, the music I wanted you to hear. As soon as it's done, I am going to tell you who it is. was i i do hope you enjoyed it i must say look i am not uh, heavily into uh, rock music uh, at all uh, particularly uh, of the recent vintage but uh, i must say i i listened to that in in astonishment and uh, and and uh, and genuine uh, admiration pretty astro- pretty extraordinary uh, eric clapton that's right eric clapton the famous guitarist uh, is the person who overcame his uh, alcohol addiction, which 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 seriously jeopardized his career? Uh, there are people who can identify the concerts he played in an in an inebriated state. Uh, there was a famous one he did in London in Hyde Park to a huge crowd, and if I'm not mistaken, people who know him have told me that uh, that a large part of that was played. Uh, in intoxication i may i may have the concert wrong but uh he overcame it how did he overcome it through prayer now you might say to yourself okay look uh, this is not a, a piece of church programming that you're listening to so what am i doing talking about prayer well uh do you remember do you remember it's a number of years ago they used to hawk on late night television <laughs> i think um, myo impulse machines or electrical muscle stimulation machines and the the line was hey you know what you can attach this thing around your waist and you're going to feel 
it's stimulating your muscles and you'll feel your muscles being worked. It's the weirdest feeling. And you can then sit on the couch, have a beer, watch television while getting the equivalent of a heavy workout. Well, a friend of mine had um, purchased one of these things and uh, he asked me to try it out, which I did. I didn't think there was any danger in it. The voltage was... uh, um, very low voltage, and I, I wasn't worried about it. Uh, or even more importantly, the current. The, it wouldn't matter if the voltage was high. Um, when you touch a doorknob after walking a co- across a carpet, uh, that little jolt you get, or that sometimes there's a little spark, there's an electric shock between your fingers and the metal of the doorknob, uh, that that can be 100,000 volts or more, but the current is negligible, so it can't hurt you at all. And so... In the same way, once I had verified that the potential current in this device was negligible, uh, I strapped it around my waist, and sure enough, a very weird experience. And my friend said to me then, so are you going to get one? I said, no, of course not. It's a total and complete waste of time. And he said, how can you say that? You felt it yourself. I said, yes, it was certainly stimulating my muscle and was making my muscle move, but I can guarantee you that it's not producing Uh, your six-pack abs. It's just not going to give you that. It won't happen. And he said, how can you know that? And I said, ancient Jewish wisdom. I must irritate my friends sometimes. You know, everything is ancient Jewish wisdom. Well, not everything, but many of the things that impact our lives most profoundly do have uh, guidance in ancient Jewish wisdom. And uh, I said to him, one of the principles in ancient Jewish wisdom is nothing for nothing. Now, there are more elegant ways of phrasing that, Uh, There are more eloquent expressions of it, to be sure, but no free lunch. There isn't such a thing. So therefore, I know for sure. If somebody tells me they've invented a perpetual motion machine, not true, right? It simply doesn't exist. Uh, If somebody tells me that uh, that he um, has a a, a special additive that will make uh, his um, V8 Oldsmobile from uh, 1985 give uh, 100 miles a gallon by just pouring some of this into the gas tank? Look, um, the answer is no. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing. The, The laws of physics are very clear. There is a certain amount of energy stored up in a gallon of gasoline. And, uh, the requirement to move a four and a half thousand pound vehicle uh, for uh, X number of miles is measurable. We know what it is. And even if everything was operating at 100% efficiency, no losses along the way, there is no way that a gallon of gasoline is going to move that old clunker 100 miles. Just not going to happen. It does. There is no science that can change that. In other words, there are certain realities. Uh, We are put in the world with certain very clear limitations. We have physical limitations and intellectual limitations. The physical limitations are shaped by uh, gravity and body mass and muscle power, and the the intellectual limitations are our brain ability. We can overcome and improve much of those things, but it's not infinite. You will never be able to fly, right? If you strap on any wing you like, uh, 
birds can fly because their their mass to muscle ratio is low human beings could not because their mass to muscle ratio is high uh, could you build a light um, pedal powered plane yes it can be done it has been done uh, how far can it travel very very short distances without carrying any additional weight whatsoever uh, so it's 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 more of a toy, it's more of a, a demonstration than it is anything useful. So I just want to make sure when I say human beings aren't going to fly, uh, I, I mean that in any practical sense, not going to happen without using the fuel from another source such as oil. And so when uh, I'm explaining all this to my friend, I'm saying there's absolutely no way whatsoever, no way that uh, that you can sit on a couch, watch TV, and you're going to develop a toned abdomen. Not going to happen. And similarly, in exactly the same way, uh, getting out of an addiction, escaping an addiction, without drawing on external energy. Look, maybe there are ways. Here, I'm not going to be dogmatic because I don't know everything about this. Uh, I'm not an addiction specialist in any way at all, but I certainly do know that uh, I've counseled many people uh, who have been at the point at which Eric Clapton was at during that uh, part of his treatment, where he describes in his autobiography. I've counseled people who've been absolutely at wit's end uh, over, about overcoming something that's just holding them back. And, uh, and they've tried everything. They've had all the possible treatments. In the final analysis, what has worked is humbling yourself in prayer. Um, why? That's another discussion. Maybe, maybe we'll have a chance to talk about that. But what that does is it gives over power to an external force, in this case, God. And although the Alcoholics Anonymous program also requires you to give over yourself in that sense, they avoid being deliberately... Uh, and specifically God-centric in the, uh, in, and there are reasons for that, because they wanted to be able to reach many, many people. I'm sure you can figure it out for yourself. But uh, there is no doubt whatsoever as to the, again, that basic idea, you have to humble yourself, you have to surrender yourself to an outside power. Getting on your knees in prayer just just works, as Eric Clapton said it did. It, it, now, it's very difficult to do. Why is it so difficult to do? I'll explain that um, just as soon as we get back. Uh, for more, more information on this kind of thinking, uh, have a look at uh, Buried Treasure at my website. Now, here's the great thing. It's available in Kindle. Are you, are you a Kindle person? Uh, I am, I'd say about, uh, for me, maybe a maximum at the moment of 20% of my reading is on a Kindle. I don't think a lot more than that, I have to tell you. But uh, I do find it useful on that section for that amount of my reading. So uh, you can download Buried Treasure right to your Kindle immediately if you are a Kindle person. At any rate, uh, go to um, the website rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, take a look at the book Buried Treasure Life Lessons from the Lord's Language. Okay, uh, your rabbi, back with you in just a We're back again on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi remains sullenly dedicated to revealing how the world 
really works. And ignoring money is really not the way the world really works at all. And the, the truth is that um, people who pretend to have no concern at all about money uh, are people who are already insulated from reality by obviously having a great deal of it. But ordinarily, people should be educated uh, to be aware of it. One of the many great tragedies about geeks, geeks, right? For those of you new to the program, recent arrivals at the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, a geek is an in a government indoctrination camp, the initial letters of government indoctrination camp, a form of institution popularly known as public schools. But um, one of the great tragedy of many tragedies of government indoctrination camps is the deliberate uh, program of making sure that children leave geeks utterly ignorant about money in in every way whatsoever. It's a great tragedy, and I do believe part of the government indoctrination program, because the less people know about money, the less likely they are to ever become truly financially independent. And people who are not financially independent uh, become more willing to pay homage to government. Uh, They become people more willing to view government as their ultimate safety net. And uh, I think that that's intentional. I think the idea of gigs is to produce people who will be good voters for the Democratic Party uh, for the foreseeable future. I think that is what lay behind almost everything that uh, President Obama did with public education. I think it also lay behind everything that he did with immigration. But that, however, should not be something you allow to be done to your children, to your grandchildren. You want to do anything you can to help them understand how money works. I've said before that if there are only two things uh, parents teach their children, how male-female relationships work and how money works, you have done your job as a parent. Throw in how spiritual reality works and you've covered all the bases you're in good shape even if you haven't done um, ballet and uh, and all the extra programs out there but if you've done those three things you have put your offspring on the road to successful lives and so it was not altogether dumb uh, when James Carville back in the Clinton administration Uh, coined the phrase, it's the economy, stupid. The the truth is that uh, although uh, the popularity of Bill Clinton soared after all the accusations of his sexual molestations went public, um, it was was an astonishing thing to watch. I mean, people, people were really okay with it. And the end result was that the Republicans ended up looking stupid, although what they were doing was entirely proper and appropriate. It was a, an impeachment issue over lying. And, um, you know, it backfired on the Republicans because one big thing was happening, and that was the economy was going well. 
And for whatever reason that is, I'm not going to analyze it now, but um, I've got a friend called Emma Terrell, who um, is uh, just a terrific, um, he's, he's been in Washington for years, he's written for The Spectator, and uh, just a, uh, a, a glittering man to talk to, just, uh, just exciting to talk to, he's got a, a wonderful mind. And um, somebody else whom I, I don't know personally, but whom I've um, read and known of for many years is Conrad Black. And I, I last quoted, uh, I don't remember when I last quoted Emma Terrell, but I last quoted Conrad Black because uh, he, back in uh, the fall of 2016, uh, was very positive on Trump, as you will remember, was I know, and I'm not. I'm not going to be an Ayatollah Yuso, but um, <laughs> but I did. Uh, yes, indeed. So um, I always raced to read whatever Conrad Black came up with. He's a Canadian publisher, by the way. If you, if the name doesn't mean anything to you, also a fine writer. He's a historian. Again, just one of these very interesting people out there, and. Uh, and so as I started thinking to myself that one of the things I wanted to do on today's show was just do at least a quick review of uh, the Trump presidency, right? Year one of the presidency. And uh, and so I, of course, uh, checked in with, with both uh, Conrad Black and Emma Terrell. And uh, and I realized that this this obviously is something each of you can do for yourself. You, you really don't need me. There's not anything I can tell you that that's fresh and new. Um, but I will say this, that in the same way that it's the economy stupid uh, really saved the Bill Clinton presidency, there were a number of other things <laughs> that, the, that that pair in the White House got up to then. But uh, the fact is that when the economy is going well, okay, that's really pretty much all we need the government for. If you can provide an environment in which business can function and people can serve one another and make money and take care of national security, keep crime under control and stop other nations from tampering with us or molesting, I shouldn't have said tampering because it brings up uh, some of these uh, Russian collusion absurdities, but... uh, Keep, keep us safe from outside enemies and from internal enemies and uh, just allow us to go about our business, that's as much as one can hope from government. And anything more that you expect government to do will come at a far greater price than any gifts it endows. And so uh, in the same way that the, 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 the flourishing economy uh, saved Bill Clinton, and I don't, I don't think Donald Trump needs to be saved. But anybody who is still carrying on about his tweets and his statements and his this and his that uh, is so out of touch with reality, so unaware that to enough Americans, the very fact that the economy is returning after the horribly suppressive years of the Obama administration's eight years, and by the way, uh, the not particularly helpful George W. Bush years um, with uh, enormous government spending, enormous wasting of treasure in that stupid Iraq adventure, and 
uh, all, all the and I mean regulations that climbed during the George Bush presidency. I, I, I think everybody knows that. Although personally, I think he he was he is a, a nice man. I I have met him. I have spent time with him. Uh, I served on a commission for a while, just by way of disclosure. Uh, all of that. And notwithstanding, it was not a great presidency by any stretch of the imagination. But um, I really do believe that we're going to look back on the Trump presidency so far. Again, look, the the future is unknown. But after this first year, I think there are grounds to say that uh, the last time we had this kind of uh, success in the president uh, was the Reagan years. It really was. Now, people go, oh, he's not a conservative. He's not a conservative. Look. I, I told you a long time ago, of course he's not a conservative. I don't even know what a conservative is. I don't care that he's not a conservative. I'm interested in the future of America. I'm not interested in the future of conservatism. What is that, some kind of a club? What does it mean? Who who decrees who's a conservative? Until you can define conservatism in better terms than what we're not. Right? Conservatives are not for big government. We're not... Stop it already. I know that you can come out with phrases uh, that we're in favor of, but the truth is uh, many, uh, many liberals will, will, will say the same thing. It's, it's a case of what you mean. It's a, it's a lot like uh, belief in God. You know, everybody pretty much says they believe in God. <laughs> it's just that many people who believe in God um, are the same people who don't take his words seriously in the Bible. That's not really what he meant. And so there's certain things that just don't mean very much. I believe in God doesn't mean anything. Uh, I, uh, I'm a conservative. I don't know what it means, and, and I don't care. The fact that Trump isn't a conservative never worried me. And uh, many of the never-Trumpers, they really need to, you know what, it's time. They need to be gracious. They need to be get off, get off their uh, high horses, and they need to say, you know what, we were wrong. Uh, this is a far, far better first year than a Hillary Clinton presidency, God forbid, could ever have been, even under the best of all circumstances. So at least have the good grace to concede that uh, this has been terrific. I told you a long time ago, more than a year ago, 18 months ago, I said, please start learning to pay attention to actions, not to words. Don't worry about the things Trump says. Just focus on the things he does. And I said you too at the time, I didn't care that he wasn't uh, a conservative. I didn't care that he'd had no political experience, although I regarded that as an advantage. But what I did care about was that if you looked at his record, he is a pragmatic businessman. And I thought, what a relief. First time in history, America could get a president who has never sought public office, never achieved public office. And, you know, this... uh, this is wonderful. This is a good thing. And um, and it has been a good thing. The year has been terrific. There is no question uh, about the economy. The growth in GDP, gross domestic product, has been over 3% for the second half of the year. Uh, the um, last quarter of the year, probably when those figures come out, probably, mark my words, 4%. For the last quarter of 2017, I believe that's what we're going to be looking at. And so uh, it's, I mean, unemployment way down. Uh, Even the government itself, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, 
you know, populated by the same bureaucrats who, who were there for Obama and who were there for George W., uh, they admit, I say admit, they, they state uh, that nearly 2 million new jobs have been added to the economy. You never saw that happen during the Obama administration. Um, what about the Islamic State? All right, and uh, I've, I, I've spoken on the show a, couple, a year and a half, two years ago. I commented on the fact that although most people say ISIS, uh, Obama said ISIL, and I explained that I felt there was a reason for that, but all of that's old history. Who cares about that now? What I do care is that uh, one, one definitely got the impression that Obama was being outmaneuvered by uh, by ISIL. You know, you, he said it was Varsity League, and then they turned out to, to actually be pretty impressive. Um, and uh, eventually, I mean, the Obama administration kind of threw up its hands and said, well, you know, they're just a reality of life. They're invincible. We're not able to do anything at all. And um, I think, I really do think people in the Obama administration were beginning to think of ISIL or ISIS as a, a permanent reality. And um, meanwhile, a year of Trump, do you understand that it's gone? At the moment, as far as we can see at the moment, it's a uh, it's no longer an existent force. That's pretty amazing. In fact, the whole Middle East is looking better. Um, uh, the, the recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Do you remember all the turmoil that was going to unleash? Uh, it was going to it was it was an excellent move, excellent move. Uh, his warning to the United Nations that uh, America will. Uh, respond economically, and why shouldn't we? Why why should we, in fact, pay vast sums of money to maintain the United Nations and to uh, provide so-called foreign aid to countries that constantly undermine us in the United Nations? It is so refreshing to see Trump taking these positions. Um, it's, it's overdue, and it is absolutely terrific to see. Um, without question, a far better time than it was uh, a year ago uh, This point, at this point. Um, the, tax, the tax cuts, right, that goes back to Reagan. It's very significant. Is the bill exactly what I would have wanted to see? Of course not. But my goodness, the dropping of those corporate tax rates is throwing the European Union into turmoil because all of a sudden they have to contend with um, firms now deciding to do more investment in the United States than in other countries. Uh, Ireland has a very low tax rate, but it's a teensy-weensy little country. And so the number of companies that will actually do business there or invest there, or real, it's not significant. But if America creates a welcoming environment for companies, this is good for everybody. Uh, and you know what? I mean, Today, the highest number of Americans have an interest in the stock market than in any time in our history. And so I must tell you, what that means is that right now, through investment, direct investment, through uh, uh, retirement plans, etc., etc., through all, all kinds of investment programs, the highest number of Americans have a stake in the stock market. So do you really think it's insignificant that under Trump the stock market has, has revived, come back? Um, it's amazing. It absolutely is amazing. And so, uh, um, look, 
this is very, very positive. And again, anything can happen tomorrow. But looking at it today, and if the pattern somewhat continues, uh, I don't think there's any question but that the, the midterm elections will be successful for, for Republicans, and let alone uh, the, the 2020 uh, presidential election. That's how it's looking right now. But, I mean, you just have to remember, I, I looked at the figures, you know, in the Obama administration and the, the Bush administration, five trillion dollars was wasted in the Middle East, totally and completely squandered, and um, uh, thousands and thousands of American casualties, blood and money, squandered for nothing, absolutely for nothing. Now, when we speak about a $20 trillion deficit in America, $5 trillion of that was wasted in the Middle East right there. And meanwhile, uh, Iraq is falling under, like many other parts of the Middle East, under Iranian influence. But once again, although uh, Obama definitely hurt this badly, it does look as if Trump is very aware of the problem, as he is aware of the North Korean problem. These are problems that were made far more grievous in the last 20 years by American administrations bumbling by showing weakness and, um, and flexibility and uh, generally conveying the impression to both those dreadful regimes, Iraq, uh, Iran and North Korea, conveying the impression that uh, we were incapable and unwilling to do anything to protect our interests. And so, you know, that was terrible. The economic stagnation during Bush and Obama were terrible. And uh, all of this is really, really turning around. Uh, and meanwhile, the political class continue yapping about, uh, about Russian collusion and yapping about this and about that and his tweets, missing the point entirely. And all they're doing is complaining about the fact that he has um, and is in the process of further slashing their influence. He declared war on the political class. He did. That was his whole campaign. He declared war on the political class on both sides, by the way. And it's one of the reasons that the Bushes proudly proclaimed they wouldn't vote for him. It was shameful and petty-minded. But, um, but, but there it is. Uh, you know, it's been an amazing first year. For heaven's sake, the... Uh, Gorsuch appointment to the Supreme Court and many, many other appointments that haven't made the news, all very positive and very good. Um, so <laughs> uh, what's there to say? You know, uh, the Mueller probe, um, I, I don't know where that's going, but uh, it hasn't yet produced a shred of any evidence of collusion. Um, I think what's, what Mueller is doing is, um, is not a good thing. Um, I'm very, very opposed to the Gestapo-style raid on Paul Manafort's house. With whatever Paul Manafort did, for heaven's sake, you don't need armed um, police breaking into his house before dawn um, 
and and barging, literally breaking and barging into his bedroom. Uh, it's horrible. This this is no good. And all I'm hoping is that Mueller will defeat himself with some of the excesses and some of the embarrassments. Um, I do think that uh, it's going to take a lot of work to rebuild American faith in some of our important institutions like uh, IRS. Um, I think the FBI has been sadly damaged, where it under-prosecuted, it didn't prosecute the demonstrable crimes of Hillary Clinton, and it is trying to prosecute the uh, the the so-called crimes of uh, President Trump in spite of absolutely no evidence whatsoever. So um, uh, that's my take on, on the first year, and... Um, uh, God bless America and God bless President Trump. I, I think he's doing very, very well indeed. Uh, again, focusing on actions, not on words. And uh, I think America is, um, is blessed. I think we're extremely fortunate. Okay, um, what I will um, ask you to do is visit the website, take a look, read up on the book Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language. And if you're interested in it, as I said, um, you can either buy it in book form, but you can also download it as a Kindle in, um, through Amazon and um, makes it easy and quick. Take a look at that. My website, rabbidaniellappin.com. I'm talking quickly because I've got a little bit of overtime on this segment. So um, a quick break. And when we come back, I want to contrast uh, the attitude towards sexual harassment 50 years ago to today and uh, see what you think. I'm also going to play a little more music, if you don't mind. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, back with you. Welcome back, everybody, as we continue with the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And I was interested in um, spending just a few moments together with you on some of the um, so-called sexual harassment uh, charges, uh, the careers that have been destroyed. Now, um, there's not a whole lot of new stuff to say about this, and uh, I'm not going to rehash old material. I'm also not the first one to observe that the failure on the part of uh, the aggressive left here, uh, the failure to distinguish between um, flirtatiousness, um, trying your, your luck, as it were, and rape, treating all of that not on a spectrum, but as if it's all exactly the same. This is going to come back to bite feminism. It's going to come back to bite women. Uh, it's obviously a, a really, really bad idea. But uh, somehow in America, we've had the tendency to become hysterical and to take things to extremes. I don't have to go back to the 17th century and uh, the witch trials. Uh, one can actually go back to the 1980s, and you will remember the McMartin preschool case and uh, similar cases in Boston, Massachusetts, where people's lives were destroyed. People were put in jail because of the absolutely fantastic tales told by preschool children. And in spite of the fact that it quickly became evident that the tales had no basis in reality at all, you know, little children being little children, uh, 
the prosecutors did not slow down and uh, the public did not stop in its bloodlust. And it, it became an, an absolute national hysteria, which in hindsight today is, is a total embarrassment. It's more than an embarrassment because human beings, innocent human beings' lives were destroyed by being accused of these uh, fantastic childhood uh, midnight um, tortures of little children, right? These things never happened, at least not in the cases that were prosecuted, and lives were destroyed. We do have a tendency to do this, and uh, the same thing is happening now. Again, a failure to distinguish between Harvey Weinstein and Roy Moore is a very dangerous thing, very dangerous. And I'm, I'm not discussing the, the details of each now. It doesn't matter. But even if you believe that Roy Moore did something wrong, and I myself uh, am not at all persuaded of that, I don't automatically think that there is something hideously wrong with a 30-year-old person uh, wanting to date or dating somebody younger provided her parents approve, which in the cases of Roy Moore were true. And by the way, if uh, I would have been more inclined to be concerned, now I didn't spend a lot of time on it, but had there not been fraudulent um, t uh, tampering with the yearbook in one of the cases, I would have been more inclined to be sympathetic. But um, regardless, okay, again, I just don't, I, I think the, uh, the notion that 18 is an arbitrary date or an arbitrary age is just that. It is arbitrary. Uh, in earlier days, and you don't have to go back very far, uh, girls are 15 and 16 and 17, very often married, and, uh, and I will tell you that I have certainly seen young women of 15 or 16 or 17 who were absolutely ready for marriage. No, no question about it. I'm not saying that this is necessarily true of, uh, of girls who are in gigs who need a long time to recover from that experience. But I'm not, uh, I'm not automatically persuaded that the age of 18 is carved in granite. I understand that there are obviously there are legal issues, and, and that's a separate matter. But if there are no legal issues, in other words, if, uh, if a girl of 15 or 16 or 17 uh, and her parents agree for her to date um, somebody who is older, I don't see an intrinsic problem with that. The notion that our morality is such that we can't possibly con contemplate that thing because of its hideous immorality. What are you talking about? And, uh, and just on, on that point, I just want to clarify something which I think is, is valuable to know. Um, people think of religion as being restrictive, don't they? People think, oh, you know, how can you possibly live with the many restrictions in your faith. You can't do this, you can't do that. And this is true for whether you're Christian or Jewish. There's no question about it that uh, there appear to be restrictions. There are things that uh, religious Jews or religious Christians uh, would not want to allow themselves to do. However, I have to tell you that the truth is that 
religion is liberating. It's not restrictive. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that the non-stop accumulation of sins of liberalism knows no limit, such as that it is prohibited for a 30-year-old man to date a uh, 15 or 16-year-old girl. It's not for everybody, and if she and her parents are not in favor of it, then that's the end of it. But that this should be a matter for public um, moralizing, it's absurd, absolutely absurd. That would be an example. The idea of, um, and I spoke about this in last week's show, the idea that there are restrictions on your usage of energy, right? You have to turn your thermostat down. You have to drive fuel-efficient cars. We, or, or how about the prohibition against uh, the coal industry? I mean, that's, that is a, 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 a restriction imposed not by religion, but by secularism. And the list could go on. I could literally devote the rest of the segment to a list of the prohibitions of modern liberalism or secular fundamentalism. The list of, of restrictions and prohibitions is so long. And, and by the way, there is considerable moral uh, ambivalence in liberalism about um, animals, about eating, about eating meat. And many people burnish their... Uh, secular virtue credentials by proudly proclaiming that they're vegetarians. But I'm not sure what gives you the right to terminate the life of a cabbage just because you want to. Uh, religion, religion allows uh, the saving of human life by means of sacrificing an animal in, in terms of medical issues and things like that. Uh, liberalism has restrictions on that, and so on and so forth. I could literally devote the rest of the segment to a list of areas where secular liberalism says, don't you do that, you may not do that, that is prohibited, and where religion on those very same things says, yeah, you can. It may be under these circumstances, it may be with these requirements, but yes, you can do those things. I've got to tell you, uh, liber don't forget, religion is liberating because there is no limit to the list of sins that secularism can come up with. Literally no limit. The tragedy is that the religion of secular fundamentalism has so dominated the Democratic Party and the powers and institutions of government that these religious values of the left are quickly turned into law that restricts my religious freedom. It is my religious freedom to use as much energy as I choose to. It's my religious freedom to use disposable plastic and paper. These are restrictions that are being imposed by the religion of secular fundamentalism. It is my religious freedom to be able to take as long a shower I like without a low-flow shower head, because I expect government to make the necessary arrangements for adequate water. That's one of the things government is supposed to do. Instead of failing at that, and instead telling us that we have to save water 
as an environmental obligation. These are all ways in which the religion of secular fundamentalism, in tandem with the power of government, restricts my freedoms. Yes, religion, Judaism, and Christianity are ultimately extremely liberating. They are good things. They are liberating things. And so um, the, uh, the, the issue becomes, what is it that uh, has changed in this area of uh, sexual harassment and so on? Mike Pence was roundly trounced, criticized, mocked, and humiliated uh, by the wide-eyed liberal media. For what? For simply saying that he takes precautions Right, look, for somebody to say, I will happily go on a business trip, I will happily go on a business trip with a woman from my company, and I will happily meet her at the bar after work, and I will happily have dinner with her. I might even dance with her if there's a band after dinner. And you know what? I might even end up in her room to discuss some private business matters. But I will absolutely never uh, step over a line of infidelity. It's complete nonsense because any normal, healthy human being who is at that point, uh, you, you know, I'm sorry, uh, any man would be foolish to trust himself to say, no, I'm not going to betray my marriage at a point of, well, call it a point of no return. And, uh, all that Mr. Pence was saying, obviously, as everyone knows, was what any man knows, which is don't put yourself in a position of peril in the first place. Don't rely on your ability to extricate yourself later on. Just don't put it in. For, okay, fine. So now what's happening is that millions of men all around the country are saying, well, if one thing they're doing is they're, all, they're looking back at their uh, various interactions with women at work and uh, worrying Many, many, many women are receiving phone calls and emails from men saying, Look, did we have a problem from, you know, back when this, you know, and for most women, they laugh it off. But um, men are certainly concerned. And uh, it may well be that we are heading towards a time where uh, a man says to himself, you know, I've got a choice of hiring two people, a man or a woman. I'm going to try and avoid any charges of discrimination, but I'm going to choose the man. I just don't need the I just don't need the problem. I just don't need what can come down the road. And obviously that is not in the long-term interests of uh, the women, certainly not what they planned, but would this be the very first time that an unintended consequence emerged from a political action? I don't think so. So uh, I'm going to go back to, you remember I always say 1962 was sort of the, the beginning of it all, right? Uh, and again, uh, my usual disclaimer is that there's no particular day in 1962. It could have been 61, could have been 63. But there was the, this was a period of, of a few years in the early 60s when things in America substantially changed. And uh, there was a book written, published in 1962, and uh, I'm going to tell you what it was just as soon as we come back. The website is rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, the book this week we're talking about is called uh, Buried Treasure, 
Life Lessons from the Lord's Language. Read about it at my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, rabbidaniellappin.com. That's right. Uh, Take a look at the book, uh, Buried Treasure, Life Lessons, and um, see if it's something that is good for you or for somebody you want to gift during the season. And also, um, you, you should know that you can also get it as a download through Kindle. So anyway, take a look at it and tell me what you think. Or the best way to tell me what you really think is by investing in it. That'd be a fine way of showing me what you think about it. Uh, after you've read it, I'd love to hear from you as I do from so many. Quick break and back in the moment with the book that was published in 1960. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thank you for being there so I can be here. And I said I would tell you about a book that was published in in 1962. And uh, the book was called How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. And uh, it was actually written by uh, a very successful businessman called Shepard Mead. And uh, he he himself had actually uh, enjoyed a rather meteoric business rise. And uh, almost as a lock, he, he wrote How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. It's published in 1962 and uh, became a very popular book, sold very well. But it was sort of very lighthearted. It was tongue-in-cheek. It was the idea that, you know, you can rise in, in any business organization by sucking up to the boss and by, you know, the, the various little tricks and things that, anyway, obviously... Um, Nobody took it seriously. Nobody really thought, oh, this is really the way to succeed in business. Or nobody even thought that you could succeed in business without really trying. But uh, the book book did very well. Um, A few years later, five years to be exact, 1967, uh, would you believe it, but the Walter Mirisch company, the great producer Walter Mirisch, uh, produced a movie, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, released by United Artists, and it was a, a musical. Um, it starred Robert Morse, and uh, Rudy Valley, by the way, was uh, was in it, um, and I don't remember who else, but the, bo- the, the movie did really well, and uh, and it's I I think it's a fun movie even today. I'm I'm not sure where you could even see it. I I, I don't know if it's on Netflix or Amazon. I have no idea. But at any rate, it's called uh, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, and it's a light-hearted look back at the 1960s. But here is the part that that is most interesting to me. And that is, there is a song they sing in the movie, and you know, in the in the in the stage. It was also a successful Broadway show, by the way, before it was a movie. Uh, the song they sing is called "A Secretary Is Not a Toy," and this is it's really uh, it's it's something to hear, and it's also something to see if you actually watch it or see it on on the movie screen. Um, because first of all, it sort of gives you this picture, which we got a little bit from those people who watched the AMC series Mad Men on television. But what business was like in the 60s? Now, I just want to say this. and Well, maybe I'll just want to say it afterwards. But right now, let me give you some of the lyrics, because I will play the song for you, but, but it's hard to hear all the lyrics on the song. Um, A secretary is not a toy, no, my boy, not a toy to fondle and dandle and playfully handle in search of some puerile joy. No, a secretary is not, definitely not a toy. Um, Be good to the girl you employ, boy. Remember, no matter what neurotic trouble you've got, 
A secretary is not a toy. She is a highly specialized key, component of Operation Unity, a fine and sensitive mechanism to serve the office community with a mother at home she supports. She, a secretary is not a pet, nor an erector set. It happened to Charlie McCoy boy. They fired him a shot the day the fellow forgot that a secretary is not a toy. Um, a secretary is not a thing. One by key hold by a string. Here's a good here's a good stanza. Her pad is to write in and not to spend the night in. If that's what you plan to enjoy, no, a secretary is not a toy. Anyway, you get the you get the gist of it. And um what I think uh, I'm going to do is uh, just give you a little bit of a flavor of that, okay? Once again, uh, a little a piece of music. This The song is just interesting. Now that I've given you the lyrics, uh, you'll be able to, I think, uh, catch the words. And this, remember, this is 50 years ago, all right? 51 years ago. Let's think about what has happened in America in the last 50 years with the secularization of the culture. All right, enjoy. Gentlemen, a secretary is not a toy. No, my boy, not a toy. To bundle and dandle and playfully handle in search of some puerile joy. No, a secretary is not, definitely not, a toy. You're absolutely right, Mr. Brandt. We wouldn't have it any other way, Mr. Brandt. It's the company rule, Mr. Brandt. Not a toy, no, my boy, not a toy. So do not go jumping for joy. Boy, a secretary is not. A secretary is not. A toy. A secretary is not to be used for playing therapy. Because you're a girl, you would boy. A secretary is not a thing. 
suppose that uh, that sexual harassment was a non-stop factor in life in business in the 1960s that would not be accurate I would say this and let's let's admit it uh, I would say that there was sometimes an element of sexual tension in business I will go further and tell you let me say something let me say something that is um, is very true but at the same time uh, shocking politically inc- I mean, you know what I even have to give these caveats for my goodness I mean obviously I am trying to deliver a show that you find interesting and entertainment entertaining and valuable um, and the last thing I want to do is offend anybody to the point where you turn it off I don't want to do that but let me tell you that um, sometimes, and I'm not saying that I'm not saying women cannot uh, achieve heights in American life today. I'm not saying that a woman cannot be a judge uh, or cannot be a, a top-rate business executive. Or I'm not saying any of that. I I have my doubts and misgivings about women in law enforcement. I have my doubts about women in the uh, penal system. Yes, I have my misgivings about women uh, taking care of dangerous long-term violent convicts. There have been a number of incidents fired upon. I, I have my misgivings about that. My I have misgivings about women in the military. I think it's a mistake. Uh, and it's a mistake that uh, I think America is and will pay the price for. But um, all of that having been said, I, I recognize that uh, there is no reason why your daughter or my daughter cannot become anything, a doctor, a lawyer. Uh, I'm not going to say a uh, deep sea diver, because I don't think that is correct. Uh, but that all, all that having been said, I will say this, that very often the best way for a young woman to move forward in life and uh, achieve happiness and fulfillment is by marrying a financially successful man. I mean, you can hear, can you hear my voice tightening in tension, <laughs> having, to, having to bring out these frightful words by being so politically incorrect? It, it, it really shouldn't require that. So I, I'm going to try and say it one more time, all right, without any tension. And that is that a, very often the best way for a young woman to achieve happiness and fulfillment is to marry a financially successful man and build a marriage and a family. That is, that is the reality of it. Now, uh, obviously, any father of a daughter worries that his daughter might find herself divorced and 
incapable of supporting herself down the road. These are horrible, horrible things and sad, tragic developments of the way we have eroded our culture. But uh, I want to say that back in the day described by how to succeed in business without really trying, uh, it was very common, very common for women to marry upwards in business. And uh, it, this was so normal. And again, if, uh, if you are somebody who came, I mean, if you, if you were in your 20s or 30s, listening to me right now, you have no direct personal experience of, of what I'm describing, but uh, you don't have to. The stuff's easy to research, and it's an absolute truth. I have to tell it to you again. Uh, the number of, and I'm going to call them what they used to be called in those days, the number of stewardesses who married passengers, business, successful business people uh, traveling. By the way, it was regarded, it was a step into marriage to work the first class cabin on airplanes. And uh, those were the days where stewardesses, uh, cabin attendants, if you please, uh, were young and comely. And it was absolutely, you know, this was grueling hard work then as it is now. And one of the ways that um, stewardesses saw their lives moving forward uh, was through marriage. And who better to marry than somebody traveling first class? That's how it used to be. Uh, women who worked as secretaries very commonly ended up marrying the men they worked for. It happened all the time. Why shouldn't it? Right, You are in this environment. Secretaries in those days were dressed very well and very elegantly. Uh, you dressed for work. Um, they, the, the, the atmosphere was, as I say, somewhat sexually charged. Not that there was funny things going on. There weren't for the most part. But, um, you know, what happens is when, uh, when a, a, a marriage-minded young woman is in a, a role of serving a, uh, a powerful and attractive and confident man, whether it's bringing him his coffee or taking dictation or dealing with, uh, with, with problems he has that need to be resolved, you are sort of in a kind of very romantic, wifely kind of a role. And as far as the man is concerned, uh, who would he rather marry? than somebody he's known for the last two years, who's been reliable and trustworthy, who's been his confidant, who's taken care of most of his needs. Uh, it, it happened all the time. It was normal, it was appropriate, and it worked well. It wasn't a bad thing. We can kiss all of that goodbye. The idea that work is an avenue upwards. All right, now I happen to share the opinion of many, many, many women, including a majority of women in Holland, by the way, that something I happen to know about, um, that working nine to five in a job isn't all it's cracked up to be. And uh, if you can marry a successful man whom you love, who is willing and eager to support you and to raise a family, for not, not every woman, but how about I say in my estimation for 95% of women, that's a pretty good deal. And it's a great deal for men as well. Because finding a great woman who is going to be your partner in life and who is going to be 100% with you 
and there for you all the time and who will raise your children to love and respect you. That's a pretty sweet deal too. And uh, it makes perfect sense to me that a majority of women would love that if they could get it and uh, smart men would love it too. Times, times really have changed and let's not leap to the conclusion that they've necessarily changed for the better. However, there is such a thing as coming back from the brink. There is such a thing as restoring a society. It hasn't happened uh, throughout history with only one exception. Generally speaking, when uh, societies reach a certain state of uh, depravity, a certain state of decadence, they pretty much head on down until they go over the cliff and vanish off the stage of world history. Um, it never happened to Israel. In spite of the fact that there were very bad times, uh, there were times where it really seemed as if the end of the people of Israel had arrived, and most notably in recent times, in, uh, in the middle of World War II, middle of the 20th century it pretty much did look as if it was the end and in many other times during history it also looked that way uh, israel keeps coming back why because the power of regeneration resides in the bible this is something that judaism and christianity have always understood and it's something that america understood until 1962 if that comes back so can america my friends, that's as far as we'll go on this show. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, wishing you a week of prosperity and good health. Uh, for those of you listening to the show on time, I want to wish you an uplifting and joyful Christmas. Um, it is a special time, and uh, I hope you celebrate it uh, beautifully with family and with friends. And um, we will be together uh, a week from now. But uh, until then, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.